art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, as we conclude our series on fullness today, we bring our hearts together to pray, Father, for understanding. We're asking you to give us clarity as to what is before us, clarity as to the purposes that you have for us, and uh, help us to be like the men of Issachar that understood what Israel ought to do. They understood the times. We ask, Father, that you would give us that second part of our prayer covenant, the, the unction, the anointing to do what you've put before us, Lord. We realize that some things will never happen as hard as we try unless you give us anointing to make it happen. So we submit ourselves to you. Father, in this day, we need to understand. We need your strength because the enemy wants to wear out the saints of the Most High, but we pray for unction and anointing. And Lord, we pray for unity. In Jesus' name, help us to have the grace to not believe the devil. Help us to have the grace to not believe the devil even when he tells the truth. Father, help us to put our hearts focused on you. Help us to believe the same thing, to work for the same thing, to pray the same thing, to see the same thing, because we need unity as we move forward today. Give us that help, and we'll thank you. We believe you hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's finish up fullness today. Now, we have spent the, the majority of the year, in fact, almost um, uh, every service except for days that were specially designated like Easter, Palm Sunday, something like that. We've been on the various dynamics of fullness. This is number 30, and it's the formal end. We may have a couple of things to kind of tie stuff together uh, as we move into the new year, but we concluded fullness with this subsection, a seven-part subsection on uh, why God's people come to church. The first message that we talked about, we uh, went to Samaria where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and he gave her the assurance that the time was coming. He said, in fact, it's here now when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. And every church in the world, I suppose, uh, feels that they have a cornered the market on worship in spirit and truth. The way we sing, the way we teach, our liturgy, the length of our service, the shortness of our service, whatever it is. But there's got to be something a little more precise when we ask God what this means, worshiping in spirit and in truth. Well, generally we say, well, it means it's real worship, not false worship. Those kind of things are, are a given. But I think if we're going to really understand worship in spirit and truth, we need to look at worship in the New Testament, where Jesus said worship in spirit and truth is about to begin. And let's look at those characteristics. So that's what we tried to do. 
We said that worship is a very important part of coming together. There is a worship that occurs when we come together that doesn't occur when we stay apart. Not that solo worship is not valid or valuable. I imagine John being in Patmos uh, in exile learned that God is with him when he was alone just as much as when he was in the church at Ephesus. But at the same time, there's that symphoneo. It's that coming together of worship. And we learn that worship, by and large, occurs because we begin to understand who God is. And praise occurs, by and large, because we celebrate what, we has, what He has done. And we come together to worship to collectively thank God for His nature and His actions. Then worshiping in spirit and truth says that we come to be strengthened in Christ together. Somebody told me, in fact, a couple of people said, never heard you preach a message like this. On that Sunday, probably over half the time was me just reading scripture after scripture after scripture. And the reason I did that is to show you how much the New Testament talks about us coming together for the purpose of being strengthened. We are made stronger by coming to church then you are staying home, not coming to church to get a rest. It's something mystical. It's something spiritual. When we come together, even though it costs us, it builds us back up. So we come together to be strengthened in Christ. We come together to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. God has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He has given us other gifts in the body of Christ to equip us to help us find anointing, to find appointment, to find um, uh, this, this um, giving forth uh, of, of spiritual gifts in order to bring about the work of the Lord. We come together to conduct business, uh, a kingdom business. Now that does not mean that the only thing the church comes together to do is just declare business and make decrees. There's a time for that. But the emphasis... Uh, of making church business is growing out of intimacy with the Lord, getting the mind of Christ, being able. I want to tell you, if a church, if a pastor is able to say, as James did in Acts chapter 15, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. If we can say that, we have achieved a lot because we've come together to conduct kingdom business together. We've come to be touched and made whole by Jesus, as Pastor Corey so masterfully pointed out a couple of weeks ago. But there's also another dynamic of worshiping in spirit and in truth, and I think it is to be empowered to spread the gospel. Justin, I did it again. Can you bring me my water, please? I'm just giving you more camera time by bringing the water up here. Thank you. I don't know, I forget it every time. Let's look at some scriptures that talk about coming together. And there is a mystical formula, not, not magical, but mystical. Some things happen when this formula is followed that wouldn't happen otherwise. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. They came to him. Okay, that was before the church as such was born, but it's the principle. He called them, they came. He appointed 12 that they might be with him 
and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Loved ones, what we're going to find out as, as we read just a little bit further is that the, um, power is what we're after. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. But we need to understand that we don't get power except by authority. And we don't get authority except by intimacy. Jesus said he called them. What was the first reason he called them to be with him? To be with him. And the reason you come to church, the reason you have a devotional life, it's not to check off a box on your daytimer or whatever it is on your computer. It's to be with him. And as we are with him, he grants authority and authority yields to power and power yields to signs and wonders and the works of the kingdom. We are sometimes grievously mistaken in seeking power. We want miracles. We want healings. We want whatever you want to categorize signs and wonders as. We want that and we say he's given us authority and I want to stop and ask you, has he? Theoretically, he's given authority, but authority comes from intimacy. You know, it's like, uh, like your family. You have authority over your children because you take responsibility for your children. You don't have authority over anybody else's children unless you're some misguided organization that has illicit power. No, you have authority over your children because you love your children and you take authority for your children. You're responsible for your children. And it's tied to this idea of coming to Jesus in intimacy gives you authority. And as you live in authority, he will anoint you with power. We don't go looking for moments of power. We go looking for moments of intimacy. And intimacy will give us authority. And then out of authority, he will give us moments to manifest power. Now that's, that's a sermon within the sermon, but don't count it on my time. Okay, so they came together with him to be with him and that he could give them authority to preach and power to drive out demons. Matthew 28, here's, here's an amazing story. We are so familiar with Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's the Great Commission. But it's more amazing when you read the verses before it. Listen to this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped them. And here's the mystery of mysteries. But some doubted. Now, you would believe that early in the ministry. You'd believe that on the day between crucifixion and resurrection. But here it is after Jesus has manifest himself with what the Bible describes as infallible proofs and evidences. The disciples are about to witness the ascension. I mean, as far as Jesus' ministry on earth, th this, is, this is the highlight of highlights. It's the vindication. It's the evidence. I won. And the disciples are ready and they're still surrounded by some that doubted. I don't know. Maybe somebody put something in the coffee and we're hallucinating. Maybe he didn't really die on the cross. Well, it's just amazing. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, and sometimes Jesus does what we have to do, and that is just ignore the doubt. 
Sometimes he helps it, thank God, like the man who brought his son for deliverance, or Thomas, where Jesus said, look, if you've got to touch my hands, if you've got to put your, side, your hand in my side, do what you have to do to believe. But sometimes Jesus just, and this is the frightening thing. That's why you don't ever want to be comfortable with doubt and unbelief, because you run the risk of Jesus just ignoring you and going on to those who do believe. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus brought them together for all of these other reasons, but he also brought them together to command them to win the lost and to make disciples. Let's read Mark's take on it. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. I am, I am, um, this is a miracle at Sand Mountain moment. I need to explain something. We do not handle snakes. <laughs> we do not drink poison and dare the devil to kill us. Um, I think this is probably talking about two things. I think one, it may be like Paul on the Isle of Malta where he was gathering sticks for the fire and a venomous serpent bit him and Paul shook it off into the fire. He was, he was marked for death by the serpent's bite. They said, well, he's a criminal. Even though he escaped shipwreck, justice won't let him live. He's going to die. But when he suffered no ill effects, they changed their mind and said, he's not a criminal. He's a God, you know, and that's the way popular opinion swings just that fast and just that far. I think what he was saying uh, here is two things. Number one, he said, they, th there will be times that you are spared miraculously from things that would be devastating. Oh, I believe he meant tongues when he said tongues. And I believe that uh, he meant driving out demons when he said driving out demons. But he said, and this is the second thing, I think that what Jesus was saying is, you are not going to live under the laws of this culture anymore. You're not going to live under the laws of this dominion anymore. You're going to be supernatural and not everything that you do will have supernatural evidence, but there will be times when you will defy logic. There will be times when what happens to you does not match up with what should happen to you. And he was giving them an excitement about supernatural ministry. He said, you will place your hands on sick people and they will get well. And after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them. That's so important. You see, not only do we come together to take on the Great Commission, we go and when we go, the Lord said he will work with us, confirming his words by the signs that accompany it. Now, I want to talk to you about missions, the Great Commission. I want to remind you from this card that's in your bulletin on Wednesday, 
the 9th. Uh, Sam Johnson will be our speaker on that Wednesday night. Thursday, he'll be speaking to the adult seniors. And then on Sunday, uh, I tell you, one of my favorites, John Easter is going to be preaching. And that's the day we want to receive our faith promises. Now you're going to have faith promises in your bulletin for today in two more weeks or three more weeks, something like that. And um, you don't have to fill this out today. We want you now, now if God speaks to you and you want to fill it out, turn it in, you can. But we want you to take this. We want this to be something not that you do on the, the spur of the moment in an emotional part of a service. We want this to be something that God partners with you about. We want this to be something that you've prayed over several days before you fill out because we want everyone to participate. But you're going to see this, but we're not going to take time today or next Sunday uh, um, to, to uh, receive these. It'll be the day when John Easter's here. But again, turn it in anytime you feel that you've settled that with the Lord. It's going to be a great time. Now, um, with that being said, I want to preach a message on missions different than any message I think I've ever preached on missions. We've always talked about faith and we've told stories and we've laid out our principle why we believe missions are important. But today I would like to lay out five foundational things. You see, the church is about to head into a new era. There's going to be new leadership. There's going to be new challenges. There's going to be new opportunities. The demographics of the church are changing as, as uh, uh, you know, our younger generation has grown up and our grown up generation has grown old and we've got everything in between. We've got an exciting crop of babies and kids over in that other building. I am so excited, but we need to lay some foundational things so that as we go forward, we'll understand how we operate. And today I want to talk to you about how missions operates in our church. I need to say this, it's not the only way missions can operate. It's not the only model that you can find. It's not the only successful model that you can find, but we believe that this is solidly based in scripture and we believe it's a biblical model. So here's number one, great churches, uh, great missions churches understand the rhythm and balance of the inward turn and the outward turn. Uh, if, if you played high school basketball, one of the, if you had a good coach, one of the first things he did is whenever you were a ninth grade on the JV team, he talked to you over and over about an inward pivot and an outward pivot. He said an outward pivot will give you this kind of coverage, an inward pivot gives you this kind of coverage. This gives you this kind of speed, this gives you that kind of speed. And I kept waiting for him to tell me which one I needed to do. He said, you have to master both because there are going to be times you've got to do this. There are going to be times you've got to do that. And I played basketball all my life on the playground, but I'd never heard about an inner and outer pivot. And I think churches need to understand that too. We need to understand that there is an inward pivot. We come together to care for one another. We come together to give so that we can care for each other, that we can maintain the building. Um, I, I, people don't understand how much it costs just to keep a building open sometimes. So we have to be aware that we need to give because there's an inward pivot. There will be needs in the body. 
There are programs that need to be uh, sponsored. There are bills that need to be paid. Um, it's just inward. It's, it's inward. It's not for the world out there unless they come to us. It's to keep the house going. Now, there's nothing wrong with inward as long as you understand that there's also outward. We don't just heap everything onto us. We do what we need to do to make the house functional, but we make the house functional so that we can reach out into all the world. We want to follow the words of Jesus. He said, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. In our culture, that would be saying you're going to minister in your hometown, you're going to minister in your state, you're going to have a national ministry, and you're going to have a ministry that goes all around the world. So the church needs to understand the inward pivot. You know what Paul said to the Thessalonians? He said, if you don't take care of your family, and he was talking, we believe, about families and church family. He said, you're worse than an infidel. And you've denied the faith. Paul said, churches take care of each other. Christians take care of each other. But then we also know that we have a responsibility to reach all around the world. You know, we've had churches, I won't call any names because that would be unkind, but we've had churches that have blossomed in this city and they say, we're not about, you know, this, that, or the other. We're just about reaching the world. And they are, they do well with reaching the world. But when some of their people are in the hospital, they want us to, to visit them. When some of their people die, they want us to do the funeral. When some of their people want us to want to get married, they want us to do the, the wedding, uh, the where am I? Weddings or funerals? Whatever. Well, they're not a church. They're just an agency. Anytime somebody needs something perfect, they reach out to a church that has an inward turn. And it's not right. And it's not going to last long. It'll, it'll flounder sooner or later. But I also know if that inward turn is all a church does, they will never flourish either. We sometimes are so concerned that everybody has everything they want that we forget about missions. Are you guys with me here? Okay, that's number one. We've got to understand that there is an inward turn and an outward turn. Okay, we have to have that balance. Here's the second thing. Great churches reveal uh, that great results occur in less than perfect conditions. Boy, this ought to encourage us. We don't have to be perfect to have outstanding results. You know, do you realize in baseball, if you strike out seven out of 10 times, you can get in the Hall of Fame? I mean, baseball understands what it's up against. You take a 95 mile an hour pitch coming at you, they say seven out of 10 times, you swing and miss, that's okay. You still have greatness ahead of you if you can connect and bat 300. Uh, you see, if I were God, have you ever heard me say that before? <laughs> if I were God and I was about to pour out the gift of my spirit and fill people with a grace that would change the world, I wouldn't have picked Jerusalem. No, I would have, I'd have picked some other places. I, I would have, even Capernaum had a better track record than Jerusalem. And, I, well, let me just put it to you this way. Jerusalem was a burned over field. Everything God had done for ancient Israel 
had its roots in Jerusalem, and everything ended up with some sort of failure. God kept pouring. Oh, there were pockets of revival. I know that. But I'm not talking about those pockets. But I'm saying generally whatever God did, Jerusalem rejected it. It was a burned over field. Not only was Jerusalem a burned over field, it was hostile to the message of the gospel. You say, oh, pastor, I've been to Jerusalem. It's such a beautiful city. How could you say that? I've been to Jerusalem too, and I love it. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. But I want to tell you, something ought to kick into your mind when you're taking the tour. And this is where so-and-so was killed. This is where that prophet was killed. This is where that prophet was killed. This is where Jesus died on the cross. It ought to tell you that opportunities were not always handled well by Jerusalem. They were hostile. Jesus looked out over the, that's not an anti-Semitic statement. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. I mean, just, you don't have to look at Jerusalem. Just look at Madison, Wisconsin, where a Bible's ripped out of the hand of a Christian and eaten by a pagan. No, 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 no. We're not any better than, than ancient Israel. I'm just trying to make a point. God could have chosen a better place. Um, they, they were hostile. They were, um, they had just had a major scandal. It was in all the newspapers. There was a scandal concerning the treasurer. That's Judas for those of you that don't get my joke. Their leader was inhumanely treated and executed. In fact, there were only two things that Jerusalem had excelled at. And Jesus knew it when he was coming into the town on the Mount of Olives. He looks out over the city, that beautiful view, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How did he describe it? You that stoned the prophets. How often I wanted to gather you unto myself and protect you like a hen gathers her young, but you were not willing. See, it's one thing to pass up on something because you don't understand it, but to pass up on it because you're unwilling. See, that's what I was saying about that passage. It's one thing to, to struggle with doubt, but it's another thing to be committed to doubt and make God look past you. Boy, I tell you what, they did have, they, they were consistent though. They did two things very well. They hated the prophets, all of them. You say, oh no, they loved the prophets. The only prophets they loved were those they had killed because a dead prophet is not a threat to anybody. You know, it's why a lot of people that aren't Christians love Easter and love Christmas. I mean, he's a baby and he's on a cross. What's he going to do to me? But they loved the dead prophets. They hated the prophets, number one. And this is their other point of consistency. They missed the timing of every opportunity that God had given them. So uh, you say, well, boy, you're down on Jerusalem. Well, I love Jerusalem. I'd love to go to Jerusalem again. In fact, it's, as soon as we know travel's safe, we're going we're gonna to take another trip to Jerusalem, to Israel, Lord willing. But that's not where I would have started. I would have picked a nice, quiet spot in the wilderness and called everybody out there. But then you look at the ascension. After all of these infallible proofs, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. They're going to watch him go. And angels standing by are saying, why are you staring up into the heavens? Don't you know that this same Jesus is going to come again? Just as you saw him go, he'll come again. 
but they were surrounded by people right in the middle of that that did not believe. They did not believe. What about the church at Laodicea? The church at Laodicea was, had a poor, poor location. They were the church on the wrong side of the tracks. They depended on water. To have water at all, it had to come from the Roman aquifer. And the water began as very hot water from a natural spring. And the cities above Laodicea were known for their hot springs. The cities below Laodicea were known for the cooling freshness of the spring water. Laodicea was right in the middle and their water was lukewarm. I mean, on the label, it just said, blah. <laughs> their, their, their youth group wasn't called, you know, union. It was called blah. And that's, Jesus made a play on words. He said to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, he said, I wish you were cold or hot. In other words, he said, cold water serves a purpose. Hot water serves a purpose. But you're just blah. You're just lukewarm. And he said, the condition of your water typifies your life. And not only your natural life, but your spiritual life. You're just blah. Nobody takes vacation in Laodicea. Nobody goes there for a retreat. But you find Laodicea mentioned in another passage of Scripture. Paul said, out of deep, deep poverty, they gave a sacrificial offering that saved the day. Loved ones, I want to tell you, God is able to take down to the bleh places and the bleh people. That's why Paul, are you guys with me here? That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, there aren't many mighty, there aren't many noble that are called. Now there are some, God can use you if you're mighty or you're noble. He just usually has to work harder. But he says, God has chosen the common things, <coughs> the weak things, the foolish things, the counterintuitive things of the world to call into question the mighty things of the world. And we're going to find out, loved ones, before this message is over, the kingdom of God does not operate on the world's might. It operates on counterintuitive weakness because it's a weakness that is learned to let God make them strong. But the church at Laodicea was a, was a typical example. Let's go on to number three. Great churches understand the rhythm and balance of inward and outward turning. There has to be keep the church going, keep the church going. You understand that? Keep it going and keep it going. Number two, we don't have to wait for perfect conditions. We don't have to wait for a perfect pastor. We don't have to wait for a perfect staff. We don't have to wait for a perfect Op, uh, um, congregation. We don't have to wait for the perfect opportunity. Because God says anybody that's got a heart for me, whether they're weak, frail, or blah, I can use them. I can use them. Number three, the Great Commission is a matter of discipline and grace. You say, what do you mean the Great Commission is a matter of discipline and grace? The, the, the Great Commission will not happen unless we put discipline in our life that says, I will go. 
I think of missionaries that have to go and spend sometimes two years in language school. I think of the sacrifice to learn a new culture. Man, I tell you what, it, it, it's going on a mission field is generally not just, well, we're going next month and hallelujah. No, there's intense training. There's intense preparation. There's intense, intense sacrifice. And my hat's off to our missionary families. I grew up in a church that honored missionaries as our heroes. We never looked down on a Sunday that a missionary was coming to speak. We were excited. We were honored that they would fill our pulpit. But there, and it, part of it was because of the great discipline. But there not only was a great discipline, there was a great grace that came upon them. Loved ones, if we're not careful, I'm telling you, if we're not careful, we will celebrate the grace of God without understanding the discipline that sets the stage for that grace to occur. Here's number four. The Lord directs, then the Lord empowers. We don't just sign up because somebody needs money. We don't just support something because it's something we ought to do. We have to be directed by the Lord. The Macedonian called. Paul tried to go to a couple of different places and they were worthy. There was nothing wrong with those places. But we need to understand that missions only operates when we have the mind of the Lord and we partner with people that the Lord brings into our path and we obey him and then we can expect signs following. Now, Great churches understand the rhythm and balance of inward and outward turning. Keep the church going. Keep the church going. Great results occur in less than perfect conditions. We don't wait for perfection. We don't wait till all our bills are paid, you know, to start giving to missions. You remember the first Sunday I was here, that little poem I gave you, and I, I repeated about every year or two. The groom, bent with age, leaned o'er his cane. His steps, uncertain, need guiding. While down the aisle with a wide toothless smile came the bride in a wheelchair gliding. And who was this elderly couple thus wed? You'd find when you closely explored it that this was that rare, most conservative pair who waited till they could afford it. We don't wait till we can afford it to get married. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, if you're in love, it's the will of God. Stop trying to afford it. You're not going to get there till you have a half dozen arguments about how to spend the money. And it'll work out. You save yourself a lot of grief. You say, what's, what's the key? Yes, ma'am. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm serious. Somebody asked me the other day, uh, since we've talked about this transition, folks are acting like I'm retiring. And I'm saying, I'm not retiring. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just changing responsibilities. And um, I'm, putting the, I'm putting the hard stuff on Corey. <laughs> but they said, what's, what's the one thing you would change if you could change anything? What would you go back and make different? And they expected me to say, oh, I'd preach this differently, or I would have done that, or I wouldn't have done that. And, you know, I can say this with all my heart. I said, if I could really just do one thing differently, I'd go back 43 years, 
And I would ask God to help me do a better job of showing my wife how much I love her. I would ask God to give me 43 years to re-love my wife. Oh, I haven't been mean to her. I've been, I've been a world-class guy. <laughs> Compact, low to the ground, muscular, handsome. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. The longer, the longer I live with that woman, the more I wish I could go back and just, just show her how much I really love her. You see, what I'm trying to say is this. A lot of times, if we're not careful, we will get so caught up in emotions that we, we squander moments that matter. And great churches understand we got to keep the church going, but we've got to keep the church going. Great churches understand we're not waiting for things to get perfect. If God can use me, you can use anything. Number three, we've got to understand that the Great Commission is a matter of discipline and grace. I need to buck up and do what I need to do. And then I need to let the grace of God come upon me to make it work. Number four, I follow the Lord's direction and he will empower. I don't just do things I think I can do. I do things that he thinks I can do and I follow him. He's the empower. Now here's the last thing. Don't get excited. There's a long ending. <laughs> the fifth thing is we need, to, we need a set of tracks to run on if we're to be successful. See, if I just say, if I just say, you know, we got to give to missions, that's wide open. But loved ones, this is what I found. Most Christians don't understand how to give. It's not that their heart isn't to give. We're, we're in a culture right now because of an independent streak. We are raising generations of Christians, not here in our church, but the church world is raising generation of Christians that, yeah, you need to give when something touches your heart. And the church world in general, people are good about giving to a cause, but they're not good about giving. You gotta, you gotta ring their bell, you've gotta play the right chord on their hearts to get people to give. And I want to tell you something, that's like saying, okay, my wife and I are doing so well, we've just spent $20,000 on new furniture from Ethan Allen and were able to pay cash for it. And I say, great. I said, how, how did you accumulate that much money? Oh, well, we, we're using our mortgage money. You can't do that. You can't use mortgage money to buy furniture. You can't buy a new car with the electric bill money. And you see, a church is no, your home is, is, that, that, is that way. Church is the same way. There is what we call general giving. And this isn't a message about, well, maybe it is. I don't know about giving. But you, you've got to understand, we have to keep the church going so that we can keep the church going. And that's why we preach tithe. Tithe is biblical. You say tithe is Old Testament. Oh, no, it's far older than that. The tithe was in place before the law of Moses was ever in place. Now, the law of Moses gave some specific guidelines to Israel. In fact, if you want to appeal to the law of Moses, the average uh, Israelite gave 23.3% of their income every year. 
You say, oh, no, 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 wait, wait a minute now. We, we're, just, we're talking about 10. Well, they gave a tithe once. They gave a tithe a second time. And every third year, they gave a third tithe. So, no, you, you don't want to appeal to Israel. But there is a giving that grows out of tithing, and they tithed long before the law. I've, I believe, and if you don't believe me, it's okay. I, I could be wrong, but it's what I live by. I believe that there are things that precede the law, like worship, like prayer, like tithing, like the, you know, serving our families. There are things that precede Exodus chapter 1. I think giving's one of those things. But I will tell you this, whether you agree with me on that or not, we give to the church and we give a tithe so that we keep things going. We pay salaries, we pay bills, we keep the building uh, cooled or heated, um, we pay off property. And loved ones, I will tell you this, I, I, I just, I'll just say this because I mean, I haven't preached on giving this year, so this will be my mini sermon on giving. Uh, the average church in America, less than 40% of the attendees pay tithe. You say, what about us? I, I don't know what our average is because I've just, I've, I've made it a point in 28 years to not look at who gives what because I wanted to have free mind to preach what I wanted to preach without looking at somebody saying, hey, I'm talking about you, you know. I don't, you, you may, you may tithe 40%. You may tithe 60%. You may not have given anything since Reagan was in the white house. I don't know. But if we're the average church, six out of 10 people don't tithe. And can you imagine what we could do if everybody just paid their tithe? We wouldn't have any building payments. We wouldn't have any property payments. If everybody just did their part. So now I'm going to leave this because some of you are looking awfully tense right now. <laughs> but I believe in giving so much. I've tried to get myself out of trouble before I've told you about this by stopping my giving. And it was one of the worst disasters of my life. It does not work. God knew what he said when he laid down a guideline that said you can do more with uh, 90% and my blessing than you think you can possibly do with 100%. Now, so much for that. that we're back, okay? Um, we need a set of tracks to run on if we're going to be successful. We need to understand the principle of pockets. When we give to the church, we give tithe, we give to missions, and we give to special appeals. Special appeals might be the paying off the new land. Special appeals might be, uh, oh, help me, Corey, uh, the giving tree or, or, or something, or special projects like we did the parking lot. And um, what we found out a few years ago, the first time we did a special project, or not the first time, but one of the first times we did a special project, we raised every penny we needed. Uh, and if, if I'm remembering right, it was a little above or a little below $200,000. But we also found out that tithe dropped by about that much. And so what we found out is that people weren't giving to the project. They were, they were scratching out tithe and putting project. And while we celebrated paying off the project, we had all kinds of problems because tithe dropped. Now we did another project, I think it was the parking lot. And I said, guys, we can't do it that way. I think it was the parking lot. We raised all of that money and tithe did not drop, tithe went up. 
And I said, we're on the same, we're on the right track now. So forgive me for sounding so carnal, but you're the one carnal, not me. And, um, <laughs> Hey, I'm just, I'm just wrestling with you. Like I wrestle with my kids. I'm playing around. What I, what I want you to understand is this. We need to understand that we give to pockets. We give to tithe to keep the church going so the church can keep going. But we give to missions specifically. It's above our tithe. It's different than our tithe. Uh, what, what, what we give to the, the property is above tithe. And it's above missions. It's different from missions. Not everybody can give to every pocket. But what we've got to learn is that every pocket is important for different reasons. So this is the way we lined out our steps over, 20, over 26 years ago for missions. We said there are three things you need to remember. We asked folks, everybody, to pray once a day. Even if it's during a meal and you just say, God, thank you for this bologna sandwich and bless the missionaries. Play, pray for missionaries once a day. Everybody pray for missionaries once a day. The second thing we said was give once a month. Now you say, why once a month? Well, in those days we had a special mission Sunday where we gave a missionary update and, and it was a day we just took about 15 minutes to kind of highlight missions. And we just, we just stopped doing that uh, because of using our time differently. But that was the day most people gave. We don't say give once a month anymore because people give every week. But the principle was give something to missions. We never asked for equal sacrifice, or excuse me, for equal gifts. We asked for equal sacrifice. Because to some people, a dollar a week might be a sacrifice. Some people, a thousand dollars a week might not be a sacrifice. So we're not expecting everybody to give the same thing. But we do ask that not only do we want everybody to pray, that's the first foundational leg. Number two, we want everybody to give, give something. Our goal is to move to the point where everybody in church tithes. Man, we will, we, we will not recognize this place if everybody would start tithing. But right on the heels of that, we ask everybody to do something for missions. Do something. You say, well, I like to give to the programs. I don't like to just give to general missions. Our missionaries are on the field. We pay their salaries. They're able to eat. They're able to drive because of general missions. Now, we still have big programs. John Easter is going to talk about a program that I am so excited about. And um, we, they, we, we, we gave last year, not including the other programs we gave. Um, with John Easter, we gave, I think it was $28,000 to a Bible school in Africa that is changing a continent as we, as we partnered with them for that. There are special projects, but we need some people that'll just say, I'll just give to missions. I'm not going to wait for something that rings my bell. I'm just going to give to missions. That'll keep the missionaries on the field. So we pray once a day, we give once a month or whatever. And here's the third one. I really believe we're going to start having more and more of an emphasis. Tommy has done such a good job of promoting this, but we want to see it bigger and better. We encourage you to go once a year. We think one of the most life-changing things that a Christian can do is go on a missions trip once a year. Now, I know not everybody can go because of health reasons or 
family responsibilities. I know that. I know it's probably unrealistic to think that everybody could go. But I tell you what my wife and I have done. I used to go on one or more every year. And I, I, just, I just don't do that uh, as much anymore. I do some. I don't build. Because when I, whenever I went on those building projects, they asked me what my skills were. And I tell you what they had me doing. Roy, they had me hauling shingles up and down a ladder. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and digging uh, mass graves and, you know, whatever. Uh, so my skills are very limited. It's just sweat gland is all my skills was. So I'm, I'm getting a, a little old to, to be hauling shingles up a ladder. Uh, so, I, so I've kind of transferred to preaching and teaching trips. But, um, but not everybody can go. But I tell you what Ramona and I have done since we don't go on these building trips, missions trips, we make it possible for somebody else to go. We give for somebody else to go. And I, I tell you, I, if I, I, will, I long for the day. I know it's not a realistic goal to have everybody go on a mission trip. Some folks are, are just not able to do that physically, and that's okay. But I tell you what happens when you go on the mission field. The first time I sponsored a mission trip um, that I was totally in charge of it, uh, well, no, I did as a youth pastor a couple of times, but, but it, the first time I'd done it in this, this church I was pastoring, um, several people said, Pastor, no, this is crazy. And they, they made sure I understood that crazy was directed toward me. This is crazy. Everything about this is crazy. You're asking us airfare, hotel, food. This trip's costing $3,000. I forget if it was a person or a couple. They, they, it was way back in the 80s, so it could have been a couple. But they said, this $3,000, we could send this $3,000, us stay here, send them the $3,000, and they can use it to buy building supplies. They can use it for this, that, and the other. That's the wise use of money. What you're wanting to do is crazy. And I said, well, I, I don't want to call his name because it probably has family living. We'll just call him Justin. It wasn't Justin. <laughs> But I said, Brother Justin, you got to understand. I said, you're right. We can get more money to the field short term. But I guarantee you, if we do it this way, they'll get more money long term. I said, because once you see the missions field, once you smell those villages, once you minister to those people and lay your hands on them and pray for them, you'll never see missions again. I said, you, I said, you know how you see missions right now? You see missions as a project number and a bottom line on the year-end financial report. I see missions. I think of Diego Sanchez. I think of people that I have developed a friendship with. I think of people that I led to the Lord. And I said, I'll never get over that. And the more people we can get to go on a missions trip, the more people will never get over our missions. So loved ones, we don't want to be a tip of the hat missions church. We don't want to be where the only thing we understand about missions are these beautiful faces on the posters. We want to have flesh and blood connection. And that's why we say it's important for you to go. You, you say, Pastor, I've got, I've got $3,000. Do you want me to just give it to the project? Or do you rather I go? Go on the trip. We'll get the project money. We'll cut Corey's pay for a month or something. We'll get the project money. But if I can get you on the ground, whether it's in 
Tennessee or Timbuktu. If I can get you on the ground and missions enters your heart, you will never be the same. So we run on the pray, the give, the go. And I believe that every Christian ought to be doing something on all three levels to some extent. Now, where do we go from here? Good question. We have to make this decision before any of this other stuff will work out. You've got to make the decision, what is going to be the fuel of your missions program? Is it going to be the energy of the flesh? Or is it going to be the energy of the spirit? You say, well, that's pastor. I don't even ask that. It's the spirit, of course. I don't know. Don't be too quick to answer because it's very costly to fuel missions by the spirit. Because that means that it's going to be beyond your resources. More importantly, it's going to be beyond your reason. And can I say this? It's not as insulting as it sounds. It's going to be way beyond your intelligence. We're going to have to learn what Zerubbabel learned. When you are faced with a project that's bigger than you are, it's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Do you realize that's what probably Paul's first epistle was the epistle to the Galatians? Uh, it's, it's probably one of the two earliest pieces of the New Testament written. And it was about Paul convincing people, how can you, having begun in the Spirit, in what universe do you think you're going to be made perfect in the flesh? He said, if you were born into this realm... Why in the name of all that is holy? And he was literally using words like that. How do you think trying to fulfill God's plan in the realm of the flesh is going to work? He said it won't work. And it was laid out in the Psalms, unless the Lord builds the house, all of your labor is in vain. Oh, it doesn't mean that there won't be a wall that goes up here and there. But in the end, it's in vain unless the Lord builds a house. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman is just marching back and forth in vain. He can't even see the enemy. It has to be by the hand of the Lord. Let me tell you this. Now, this is, this is where I've asked a couple of people after first service, did I say this the wrong way? Is it too harsh? But loved ones, I, th I think I've just, I need to lay this out so that we understand it. There's sometimes that we get it right and we do it in the strength of the spirit. But when we do it in the strength of the flesh, you got to understand that can be one of two things. Some things are just evil. Some flesh is evil. You know, if we were to sell the service of prostitutes to make money for missions, we'd all agree that's just evil. There's nothing right about that. But some things are not evil. Some things are simply not holy. Say, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, they may not be evil, but they're not holy. And it's when we try to run a spiritual mechanism by fleshly means. Let me give you an example. 
when my pastor in Bible college had heard from the Lord, he and the pastors and elders had prayed for a couple of years. They had an opportunity. The church was just bursting at the seams. It was Lakeland First Assembly of God. It was where I had attended for, for two and a half years, I guess, as a student. And I had the utmost respect for the staff, for the pastor, and um, for the leadership of the church. He said, God has instructed us, we believe after fasting and prayer, we believe God has instructed us to buy this property. It was called the Carpenter's Home property. And um, in those days, we, and a lot has happened, but that's neither here nor there. In those days, we felt like this was the Lord. He said, it is a prime piece of property. It's going to enable us to do everything we want to do. And he went on and explained it. He said, but we need you to understand we cannot afford it. Um, he said, we have to do it. We have brought in businessmen to give us their, they say we can't do it. We have brought in bankers that said, you can't do it. He said, we realized that we were depending on good systems. They weren't evil, but they weren't holy. So we asked God to help us know what to do. And I'm, I'm just, I'm a kid student in Bible college and I'm thankful I'm crying I'm saying Lord thank you for helping me see this because I know one day I'm going to have to build a church or one day I'm going to have to buy property and we're not going to be able to pay for it either help me to learn what I need to learn but everything he said just sat I mean it was like it was like uh, the the icing on a cinnamon roll just dripping off to the sides my faith was just <laughs> he said we found out that there's only one way we can do it. I was so disappointed. I thought it's going to be a Ponzi scheme or do this, do that. Everybody give 40% tithe. And, ah, I was so disappointed. He says, this is what we found out. There's only one thing we can do that will enable us to pay for this. And I knew, I knew, I knew in my mind, I said, well, this church gives so much to missions and I remember saying, if they'd just cut missions for three or four years, they could pretty well do it. And I was afraid he was going to say that. And he said, this is what we came up with. We have decided unanimously that in order for God to help us, we have to cut what we're giving to missions, just cut it out, and then double it. And I kept waiting for it. He was saying, we've got, at first, no response. He said, I'm not sure if you're hearing me, we have to double our giving to missions. He said, we're not going to cut anything. We can't cut our children's ministry. We can't cut our youth ministry. We can't cut our radio. We, we can't cut any of that. But we're going to cut out what we're doing to missions that we've been so proud of and double it. And then... Somebody said, amen. I think it was Robert, probably. <laughs> he said, let, let me say this one more time. We are going to make this work because we're going to double what we give to missions and not cut anything else. And then they began to stand and clap and applaud. Now, don't get excited. I'm not saying we're going to double missions today. Or, I mean, if you, if you choose to by your giving, that's wonderful. 
But I'm not announcing some new program. I'm not announcing a new renovated budget. I'm simply saying, as a, as a young man, 21 years old, God was beginning to teach me that there's two ways you can establish a church in the flesh or in the spirit. And, and you've got to understand that some of it doesn't look evil, but it's not holy. So you have to lean heavy into spirit. I'm so thankful to Carl Strader for teaching us that. See, I want to explain one more thing because every few years this has to be explained. There, every few years there, there comes a call. Well, why don't we seek to appoint our best businessmen to the board? Why don't we establish a committee that will handle everything? We have a finance committee. Why, but why don't we just get the geniuses in the world of finance together and let them run the church? And I tell you, loved ones, I don't want you to misunderstand me. We have some financial geniuses on the finance committee and on the board. But I learned something a long time ago. This is foundational. This is so important. I'm risking making some of you mad at me. And you can see Justin after service if you'd like. Every time in my 40 plus years, 45 plus years of ministry that we put somebody in a position of authority because they were a sharp businessman, it's been a disaster. Every time we gave somebody a job because they were good with numbers, it was a disaster. Now we have put people on the board here and at every church I've served that were excellent businessmen. But we've never, not in, not in the last 30 years I can say, we've never put anybody on the board because they were a good businessman. That doesn't qualify them. They have to be people that understand that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. I did have a, a good businessman that worked out one time very well, but this was his approach. Somebody said, well, if we do this and do this, is that solid business? He said, oh yeah, that's solid business. But he said, you got to understand one bad president will turn all of that around. He said, one dip in the stock market can turn all of that around. He said, if you guys brought me in to tell you good business, he said, my business is this, trust in the Lord and do what he says. And without that, we're in deep trouble. Loved ones, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you're a good businessman, you're not qualified for the leadership. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you're not qualified for leadership just because you're a good businessman. And we've got to understand the church won't go forward because of good business. We're not a business. Now, we have to have business principles that we follow. But there are times that we transcend business principles. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You, guys, we, we would never put the church at risk. We would never act foolishly in managing the affairs of the church. But we are at such a critical point as we begin this next growth. Are we going to build it on the ability of people that have fleshly ability? Or are we going to run to people that are full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost and trust the Lord to give us collective wisdom? Are you understanding what I'm saying? Please, if you are here and wealthy, don't misunderstand me. 
If you are here and you are, you know, on Forbes list and you are a, 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 a financial genius, don't misunderstand me. You are a blessing and you are a gift and there may be places that you are used, but I need you 20-somethings to understand this. I need you teenagers that are about to get out of high school and be an adult member of the church. You need to understand this. You, you 30-somethings that have been trained in a whole different mindset of the way the world operates. We don't operate by the world's wisdom. We don't operate on the basis of the world's finances. There's a place for that, but it's not here. You say, well, what if we make a mistake and lose everything? We won't be the first. And I will tell you this, it's not just people that make mistakes that lose everything. Paul spoke to the church in the New Testament and he said, you lost everything. Are you willing to call them losers? You willing to call them failures because they lost everything for the sake of Jesus Christ? I guarantee you there are people in power that if they had their way, we would lose everything. I guarantee it. But they don't make us losers. And we don't respond in fear by saying, well, we're going to operate. We're going we're to operate by this system, you know, just, just in case. No, we can get some advice from this system. We can learn some things from this system. But we say boldly in humility, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the way general fund operates. That's the way missions operate. When we ask you in a couple of weeks to turn in this card... We're not asking you to just carefully say, well, if I, if I dot my I's and cross my T's and mind my P's and Q's, I can give $10 a week to missions. That, there's nothing wrong with figuring out what you can give. But don't limit your plan to what the natural mind can conceive. Have I, got, have I got us in so deep we need to, do I need to run or just end? We are making decisions over the next few months that will affect us for eternity. We are making decisions in a troubled climate that will set us above or beneath what God wants. If there's ever been a time we need to hear from the Lord, it's now. If there's ever been a time we need men and women to be humble servants instead of preening peacocks. I can do this. I can handle that. Loved ones, I'm telling you, we are at a critical time. I believe we're going to have the greatest success we've ever imagined. But it won't be in the strength of the flesh. It'll be in the strength of the Spirit. Father, I'm asking you during the next three Sundays or so to, to help us. It's just a slice of the pie. It's not something we preach about every week, but we've got to make some decisions about missions. And we want to make some good foundational decisions in an uncertain economy, some of us are just 
paralyzed waiting for the midterms. And we're, we're saying if it goes one way, this will happen. If it goes the other way, that'll happen. Lord, I, I, I don't know. I know what I think. And, and there, there's legitimate fear. There are people fearing for their retirement. There are people fearing about a lot of things. I'm not, I'm not fussing at them for fearing. It's, it's, it's legitimate concern. But Father, that's all the more reason for us to hear from you and know which way to move. There's a time to hold. There's a time to give. There's a time to grow. There's a time to lay low. There's a time to be hot. There's a time to cool off and let God do something while we wait. We, we understand the times. We just don't always understand what time. Would you please, Lord, help us make the kinds of decisions in future weeks that will enable us to keep the church going so that we can keep the church going? In Jesus' name, we commit it to you. Begin to speak to our hearts. Now, we're through with that. But I also know, and ministry team, if you'll move into position today, we also know that there are some of you that you're here, you're sick, you're troubled, you, you need prayer. You need the Lord to help you. And I've, I've preached a pretty kind of a tough sermon today, but we want to move past that part and we want to move to the place where we want to pray for you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, please come to the ministry team. If you're listening online and you don't know Jesus, please call the number that uh, appears on the screen um, for, for whatever your prayer need, to give your life to Jesus or whatever you have need of. But if you're here or you're in Brown Chapel and you want help from the Lord, you want someone to pray for you, we're ready to pray for you. We're willing to pray for you. I'm going to ask everyone to stand and we're going to dismiss. And some of you that you need to go, God bless you as you go. Go with the peace of the Lord upon you. Go with the strength of the Spirit upon you. But before you go, if you need prayer, the ministry teams are ready for you. Father, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May He make His face shine upon us. May His face shine upon us with favor and radiance with direction and provision. And may the will of the Lord be done. Help us, Lord, as a church to please you in the way we do things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.